Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is the Jim Rutt Show. Today's guest is Peter Wang, co-founder and CTO at Anaconda, a leader in Python technologies for scientific computing and data analytics. And yeah, that's Python the computer language, not Python the snake. (laughs) Well, hi, Jim. It's great to be here. Peter's not only a very accomplished technologist in the Python space, but also is a deep thinker about our present world and how our technologically driven network culture and humans interact today and how they can better interact in the future, at least if we're going to survive. He's also a a leader in thinking about next generation distributed web technologies. Uh, So we got a lot to talk about, Peter. So let's start with an update on what's going on in the Python world. One observation I have, I'm a Python user. I sort of learned Python at the Hello World level in 2004. Soon thereafter, you replaced uh, my use of Perl with Python for, you know, text mangling and what have you, then started using it more seriously in uh, 2013. And now it's probably my number two language after C sharp. You know, one of the things that's always been an issue in the Python world is version two versus version three. It now looks like we're decisively past that gap. And it looks like version three from now on out. That's right. Uh, version three is, I mean, the train has not only left the station, but as of December 31st of this year, uh, the version two platform will no longer be maintained. All the developers are moving to only supporting and maintaining version three. Uh, that's been my rule for at least three years is uh, unless there's an absolutely indispensable library that wasn't version three compatible, I always went with version three. And now I'm seeing a lot of the, you know, the big main libraries have actually started to drop V2 support. So finally, the decision is clear. Yeah, it only took 10 years, you know, but uh, <laughs> in retrospect, a screwy decision to have made that fork over such minor issues. But hey, it is what it is. And it's now finally, you know, rejoined and it's version three hereafter. Now, one question I'd, you know, I'd love to ask a guy like you who probably sees absolutely everything in the Python space. What are some interesting new libraries and capabilities that have entered the uh, Python space in the last couple of years. One thing I will say up front is that the Python space is so huge now. It is, I think, by many counts, the number three most popular programming language. And so no one really can see all of it. But the last few years have, in the general Python space, been consumed by the two versus three transition and uh, what happens to two, right? And then also the um, async I.O. and asynchronous programming. A lot of those things have have just had some growing pains they've been going through. In the data science and machine learning, learning space, however, there's a ton of new stuff. And that's where I do have a lot more uh, depth and understanding. And there, I would say that in the last few years, we've gone, obviously, TensorFlow, you know, started happening, I guess, about a couple years ago for deep learning. And um, then we had a few other frameworks that came out. And what we're seeing now as the glow, I think the initial burst and glow from that phase, we're seeing more libraries come out that sort of deconstruct what a deep learning library is and create more general vector computing and optimization stuff. So I think that's some really cool stuff. Related to that, Rapids from the NVIDIA folks using uh, some of our technologies like Numba and Dask. And what else? Oh, there's some automated machine learning tools that have come out for just getting people a, a faster start You know, over all these different possible machine learning models. So I think those are some of the key ones. There's just so much going on. It's really, it's actually kind of an interesting problem that we suffer there where there's too almost too much happening for anyone to keep track of. 
I think I always worry, and you know, we know about how evolution doesn't always converge to the right solution. Are some really good tools being ignored due to uh, evolutionary drift, essentially? You know, where for whatever reason, you know, three tools, let's say higher level wrappers around TensorFlow, which has been a hot area of late, and maybe the wrong one wins. I don't know. And, uh, you know, how do we keep enough diversity in the ecosystem to make sure that guys who should win do win? Well, gosh, you know, there's so much to unpack in that question. So I think there's a defense of the ecosystem that's separate from putting our finger on the scale and saying this library should win. And in fact, if we have a generative ecosystem, then no single person can say what is the right thing. And we almost we have to round trip it and run a loop through the user space, right through the innovation community and people actually applying the stuff uh, in practice. So we might, you know, developers, we always have internal intrinsic attributes of a library that we optimize for. We'll say, oh, this one's more elegant. This one has newer techniques, so on and so forth. But until you actually put it out and run a round trip through you know, user space, you don't know what's really quote unquote right. But to actually answer your question, I think that one of the things I really very strongly feel we have an opportunity to do well in Python space, especially around machine learning, is to articulate a more modern defense of what used to be called open source, but is something different. And it's a generative contribution gift economy around source code sharing that's not inhibited or anchored by legacy approaches to IP and software uh, monetization. So this kind of got really deep really fast. So what I mean is we can talk about like people know I'm an open source advocate. You know, people know a lot of Python stuff happens open source, but I, I think the term open source is outmoded and we should almost stop using it because a lot of corporate citizens in the open source community will come out with open source, but their governance models are very limited. The governance models basically retain copyright. You know, only the corporate contributors and the employees of that corporation can push commits and things like that. And that's open source technically by every measure, by OSI and FSF and everything, but it somehow manages to not retain the ethos of the open source code sharing, sort of this generative innovation community. So that is a struggle that I do worry about. When you talk about how do we ensure that the space evolves in a good way, for me, trying to come up with that articulation of what are the values we're trying to defend there, that's one of those things. The second thing is then ensuring that lots of things have a chance to compete. So when you talk about wrappers over TensorFlow, that's all great, but 25 different wrappers over TensorFlow, at the end of the day, it's still the TensorFlow core. There's other approaches to deep learning frameworks like PyTorch, like Chainer, MXNet, many others, and they have a different construction. They have more modular construction. And an observation that my senior director of community innovation here has put so eloquently was that the reason the PyData community or the SciPy community won, uh, while we're able to create all these wonderful innovation things, is because the people who are doing the work, the, the actual heavy lifting of making code, making new uh, modular libraries, they designed them with a certain economy of scope. So they could play with each other. They reproduced, uh, they reused pieces that were already there. Nothing tried to boil the ocean. It was a really interesting innovation community. And I argue, actually, one of my talks that I've given, I argue that the PyData SciPy community is one of the very few things that I've seen that has actually out-innovated capitalism. Basically, the return on your dollar there has been better than any kind of capitalist firm. 
I certainly have found it an unbelievable ecosystem. I'm not a hardcore commercial production programmer, but I do like to try new things, right? You know, I've tried out the various TensorFlow wrappers. I've tried PyTorch. I've tried this. I've tried that. I do, I do a lot of stuff. And what I'm always amazed at, if I'm looking for some little piece of glueware or something to move data from here to there, you know, a uh, half a line worth of Google search in the Python space will usually turn up something for me, right? You know, the space is amazingly well populated. It's a blessing and a curse. You know, we've got about 100,000 packages. So <laughs> good luck. Now I'm talking to the man himself. So I should ask this question. If say someone who is not a true deep Python guru, are there ways to validate packages, libraries, systems? You know, how, how does one think about choosing between nine different machine learning frameworks, for instance? What would advice would you give to somebody who is entering this world? That's a great question. As far as I know right now, there's not really a standard way to validate it uh, or to like, there, there's, there is not um, a central credentialing authority, right? One measure that's popular is people look at popularity rank. How many downloads off PyPI? How many downloads off of Conda or Anaconda? How many questions are there on Stack Overflow? How active is the GitHub for that particular project? Those are sort of all these kind of like proximal measures of the healthiness of a project. But unfortunately, the way this goes, some software, some projects that are very useful, very solid, they don't need much fixing. They actually do a very small thing very well. And they sit around, they have no activity for a few years, but they're still perfectly fine. And so there's a bias towards newness and activity there, which uh, is unfortunate. So we definitely lack for that. And I think any, you know, further on this conversation, we talk about decentralization, we are suffering exactly that problem here. Anytime you have an abundance of options, now you've got a curatorial need, right? And the curation becomes very important. So we're thinking about ideas to improve that here at Anaconda, actually. And uh, we do play a, a very interesting role in the ecosystem. So we do have visibility into a lot of things that could inform such a curational system. But we want to make sure we do it in a way that's not ham-fisted. We want to do it in a way that you know does surface, again, the thing I talked about earlier, which is that sometimes projects that don't release very often are actually very stable and should be the ones you do use, right? Yeah, but it's not, it's certainly not a simple linear problem, right? It's a multidimensional, nonlinear problem. You, know, you mentioned a lot of things I use, you know, how many downloads does the uh, community seem alive? You know, are there mailing lists or discussion groups? You know, how I, I do use, how often is it updated? But I don't use that as a binary, as you point out, some very nice, mature packages really don't need any updating, right? So uh, why should you care about that? The other one I like to look at is look at the issues list on GitHub. And if there's a lot of issues out there that nobody's addressing, that's usually not a good sign. It's, it's interesting. It, it can be, but it can also be a different part of the quadrant, which is this is an incredibly useful library that just suddenly found massive popularity and you got one dev working on it and, you know, in his or her part time and like 10,000 people are on GitHub asking about it. Now, it normally is not that much of a ratio, but we do see this really interesting phenomenon now where because Python has gone mainstream, people, their jobs depend on it, right? You, t you talk about yourself being a casual user, but there are people who literally, you know, Python is a very high ranked skill on Indeed.com and these other sort of LinkedIn and, and job search places. People, they get a job and the job requires them to use these libraries and these are open source libraries maintained by volunteers. And so they'll show up on the tracker saying, hey, your software sucks because it's not doing this and that and the other. And the volunteer maintainers are like, well, we're not 
not getting paid for it. And there's just the incredible um, mismatch and disparity between the expectations of what I would say the standard labor economics around white collar work uh, that uses this kind of software and then the generative abundance gift economy economics that is part of the sharing tribal culture that produced the software. And at the intersection of these two things, there's not many tangent points between these two circles, in fact. So that's one of my things I like to nerd out on, which is actually also an intersection at meta level. It's an intersection between the circles of my, you know, my day job and all this Python stuff and open source community. And then also my thinking about, you know, future of human civilization and, and collective, you know, dynamics and things like that. Yep. Uh, it sounds like you're the right guy to be there to be thinking about this. And, you know, the Python community is amazing, but if you could make it even more amazing if you could come up with some way to help people sort through that without putting the thumb on the scale prematurely, right? Or at all, right? How do you get an emergent signal that's a good signal? We will come back to that problem again and again. I mean, it's funny, you know, one of the things that we look at, you know, this distributed search problem, you know, people say, well, why can't we have a distributed Facebook, right? Well, it turns out it's a pain in the ass to be able to make it searchable, right? If everybody has their own copy. So these problems uh, come up again and again and again. Now, where I'd like to go to next is something I know you've thought about and talked about a little bit, and that is the match and mismatch between human cognition and our worldwide technologically driven networks. Mismatch between human cognition and our worldwide networks. Technologically driven networks. How, you know, you've talked about things like speciation. Ah, okay. Well, where would you like to start? Start saying what you think about this problem, you know, that human cognition was not designed for fractal, huge, instantaneous worldwide networks. Right. So there's two pieces of this. So one of them is tied to the limitations of human cognition. You know, I was actually, I was listening to the Krakauer interview that you did, and he talks about it really well there as well. He talks about, you know, all of our analytical models, we're really solving for how to have a shorter model description than the phenomenological observations, right? And uh, a thing I like to say about this is that humans really are narrowband sensors that have a preference for structure. So we really, we can't help but see the world in terms of structure. And that structure is how we compress sensory input. Structure is how we compress uh, our description of phenomenon. And we really have very narrow bandwidth to process these things and to retain them. And we remember them, we remember these compressed versions of them, uh, like almost like little reduced hashes of them, not the full description. So human cognition is really, I mean, our brains are just these patterning engines. And that works fine in three plus one D space that we grew up in, had to hunt animals in and breed in. But what we've done in all of our caloric excess in modernity, we've created now technological infrastructure that exposes all of this extra like cycles that we have in our brains to a completely different, massively high bandwidth set of perceptual inputs that are all virtual. It's all virtuality, but through our eyes and our ears, I mean, even this podcast is an instance of such a thing. We are exposed to a space that, or to a set of sensory things that inhabit dimensions. They carve out dimensions. They are well beyond the three plus one D that we, that our brains really were evolved to succeed in. And these worldwide networks, the communications networks, what they've really done is now they've created a place where signals and messages and ideas bounce around and essentially have a life of their own. And, and what I like to think about is this kind of, um, if I could use a model that maybe we can come back to over and over in this podcast, but let's think of the human being as almost like a, a connected series of rods or masses suspended in water. And different layers of water have different densities, maybe different temperatures, and we're loosely connected. 
And where each of us, where just every single one of us has multiple planes that we live in, but at the highest plane, the intellectual plane, we tend to think of that as kind of this very sort of rarefied air. But actually, our intellectual brains and our cultural brains, that tier of us, it is essentially substrate for massive amounts of wave patterns and signals that bounce off each other. Some cancel each other out, some reinforce each other. So we're really like little particles of water or atoms, molecules of H2O in this giant ocean. And that's really my model for what's happening now, why it's so hard for people to talk about it, because people still think of themselves as essentially individual, whole atomic things that maybe read a book or watch a TV show or listen to a soundbite. But actually, we have to almost deconstruct what it is to be human and realize that, you know, there's so much more signal pressure on this uh, cultural and intellectual part of us. And that actually causes a disconnect in neuroticism as it disconnects with our internal narrative going between these different connected pieces that comprise us. So anyway, that's a lot to unpack there, but I just want to put that model out there as how, how I see the world and, and why I think right now we're in such a weird place. Like we have metaphysical problems. We have a crisis of philosophy is what I like to say, because our model of self, our model of agency, our model of what even a human person is or human reality is, or how important consensus reality is, all of those are breaking down. Do they have it? You think this is uh, by necessity because of the new modality or is it part of learning, you know, lack of learning? And if we look back at the invention of the printing press, apparently the, you know, various frauds and bullshit indulgences were a big thing that the printing press was used for. The early days of newspapers were full of ads for quack nostrums. Uh, I remember email quickly got inundated by spam. That's right. The Neiman Marcus cookie recipe, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But fairly quickly, humans adapted and learned to filter out the most egregious bullshit most of the time. Is that what's going to happen uh, with humans in this high dimensional, high speed network world? Or we entered a new regime where it's just beyond our capability to deal. I'm going to say that it's the latter. And the reason I say that is because, uh, well, and we see this in data science too, this argument that quantity at some level, quantity takes on a quality all of its own, right? And the difference between the kind of misinformation and fuzzy information, uh, fuzzy propagation of, of high quality signal and all these kinds of things that we've had in the past is we used to be in a regime, civilizationally or socially, of bandwidth scarcity, there just was not enough bandwidth to construct a high quality simulacrum of, of virtuality. We are now past that point. There really is a binary point. I mean, there's a hard limit to how many pixels at what frame rate you need coming into your eyeballs for you to see something that's very, very real right? There is some audio encoding bit rate below which it sounds like crap and above which it's basically like you're sitting next to me. We don't need to, you know, anything beyond that is gravy. So there's a hard transition point where we have enough bandwidth to create a distributed, you know, it's not thousand plateaus, it's seven and a half billion plateaus. We can create this virtuality and now we're in a space of attentional scarcity. So I think it is a very different thing. Yeah, and in fact I got I got a really long discussion with the guy who was asking, as I was talking about my ideas for decentralized web and things like that. And he was saying, you know, all this stuff about social media, how is this different than all the stuff people were saying about TV back in the day, right? People were saying TV would rot your brain. Neil Postman had his like amusing ourselves to death book. People said the same stuff about TV. Why is it different out of social media? And I think the difference is that uh, there's a couple of things, but number one, we're just in a different bandwidth space. Number two, it's not broadcast. 
it's not broadcast. And that's the problem. TV and radio and newsprint, at least their power came from broadcast. They can influence a billion or a million minds, but it was the same message going to the same million. What we have now is aggregated narrowcast. So every single person can get a deeply tailored virtual experience of the world that is then able to manipulate them however we want. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's a learning issue where this generation of young kids that are growing up with all this stuff, they will learn defenses. The term Eric Weinstein likes to use is malware, right? They'll have been inoculated to the kind of malware. But we have a long way to go before then. And number two, who knows what the world will look like by then that all of their interactions with each other, the human-human interface is already going to be intermediated by so much virtuality and digital modification. We may really be putting ourselves into a new phase of human evolution. And we're not, we've not contemplated really what that looks like structurally and what that means. And that's very dangerous. I think we'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, let me push back just a little. A year ago, when they when it first started getting some publicity, I became very concerned about the possibility of deep fake videos uh, being used for very pernicious purposes. And yet, as far as I know, there are zero examples, or you know, they're you know little corner cases, but no major exploits have been made around deep fakes. And that, at least to me, indicates perhaps that people are developing these anti-malware immune systems and say, you know, that really isn't Hillary's face on that porn video, right? That's just implausible, right? And isn't that interesting that all this concern about deep fakes a year ago has so far at least not been met by actual problems from deep fakes? It is interesting. I was also concerned about it. And, you know, actually, when deepfakes first came out, I went and downloaded the, you could download the, the image uh, via BitTorrent. It was about like, you know, two, three gigs was the kind of the software to do it. And I was looking through and they actually embedded Anaconda to install <laughs> TensorFlow and other stuff. So I'm like, yay, I'm very proud of this kind of. But um, here's the problem with that point of view, right? And I agree with you. We have not seen profusion of deep faked, you know, political, whatever, takedown videos and stuff like that. We are seeing some of it, you know, we're seeing social media sites and whatnot having to have policies around, you know, is it okay to take the likeness of a person and TensorFlow it, you know, or PyTorch it on top of a porn actress? And like, is that fair use? Is that art? Is it slander? What is it, right? So we got that kind of stuff going on. That is happening. That's not deep fake video, but it is happening. But kind of zooming up a little bit to answer your question more broadly, I think the danger here is that what deepfake represents is it tells us, hey, we're almost good enough to be able to use a pile of GPUs to trick our iconic visual perception system, which has been very good. That's a very well-honed system. And um, our proprioceptive system, our visual systems, these have been honed for a very long time. And so, you know, we look at a loved one, they raise an eyebrow and we read a ton of meaning, right? So these are very well-honed systems. The fact that we can take a bunch of vector hardware and fool them is like not great. It's kind of like, huh. But think more deeply than this. We are actually entering a, a zone where we don't actually know what to believe, right? Where we are going to exceed our own capability. Like we can create more virtuality that's more real than reality. So to make this more concrete, maybe that was a little abstract, but make it more concrete. You say you haven't seen any deep fake videos yet. How do you know? 
Well, actually, I have, but I haven't been fooled by any. But how do you know? No, I don't know. Certainly, but you would think, still the forensic ability to detect deep fakes is pretty strong, uh, that if we had been fooled, we would probably know at least one example thereof. And as far as I know, there's not been a single widespread exploit of deep fakes uh, that has, you know, penetrated any significant distance into our world. And as far as like, I know, uh, the forensics can still detect a deep fake at a high level uh, if you're willing to put the effort into it. Right. So to push back on that a little bit, number one, again, how do you know? Because the way that we're going to test for deep fakes, besides, you know, Amazon turking a whole lot of this stuff, is we're going to use probably GANs and other kinds of deep learning neural nets to try to detect deep fakes. So you can see the kind of the problem there, because we're going to take those, turn right back around to make better deep fakes. So our actual ways of detecting deep fakes, the forensics that we can do, I think that's sandbagging. That's not going to be a perfect approach. But even more than this, I don't if you read the articles that were coming out after the Trump uh, victory, people talk about fake news and stuff like that. And there was a really interesting, fascinating profile done on this guy who was just this rando dude in like, I don't know, Louisiana somewhere. And he just decided for lulls, he was going to create a fake website and make all these like bogus, far right wing, outrageous articles to like troll his conservative friends. And they started getting a lot of traction. He started selling ads, he started making money. And then before he knew it, he was like becoming one of these like main founts of misinformation, a right wing like nonsense. It was just a random dude with like WordPress. Okay. So the bar that you set for yourself and like uh, what you affect, what you and I might see and say, oh yeah, that, you know what, that definitely is actually Trump on a bed getting peed on by a bunch of Russian hookers. Like that bar may be very high for us. It ain't that high for the vast majority of the electorate. I'll tell you that. You know, some rando dude with WordPress can, you know, make a significant percentage point impact on election. You bet deepfakes can be a problem for us. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens in 2020. To what degree has the immune system against malware improved? You know, for instance, I think the the most successful fake news story, which is still like to your point, uh, guys like you and me wouldn't have been fooled by this one. Uh, but you know, apparently the number one fake news of 2016 was Pope Francis endorses Trump. Got 20 million views, right? You know, will people be so gullible in 2020? I would assert without being able to prove that the answer is no, they would not be so gullible that if you know someone were to refloat that or the analogous uh, or equivalent story it, it would not get 20 million views uh, 2016 was you know very early in the aggressive and moderately skillful uh, application of fake news and since then just like spam right how many people fall for nigerian letters these days not very many but uh, it was quite a good business back in the day so we shall see and you know i'm, I'm not uh, saying that we don't have an issue here but i'm saying that the doomsayers, I believe, underestimate uh, the ability of humans to learn adaptive immune systems against information malware. Now, of course, it's an arms race, as you point out, and there's no guarantee that the technology won't eventually overwhelm the ability of the human immune system. And just like 2016 showed, it will lag so that uh, even if in the long term our immune systems catch up, a lot of harm can be done in the meantime. You know, I think this is actually a really important thing to drill in on just a little bit because, you know, kind of the way I said it earlier, I'll just reiterate that we are getting better at making virtuality 
that exceeds our sort of perceptions of reality. And furthermore, more and more of our experiences of reality are intermediated by electronic means. And once you have this interface point that's some kind of electronic device, you can go and plug in virtuality, you can plug in reality. It's like, you know, when they they uh, go in the hospital and they put a little thing in your arm, they can just kind of swap out syringes and swap out different kinds of drugs and stuff as they need, right? We've got that port in our eyeballs and our ears now. We've got it, uh, everyone's got one. And so... I think that when you talk about underestimating the human ability to adapt, I, I would ask you, adapt how? Like, besides turning back into the equivalent of a, a Neanderthal, where we just have tribal, hey, what did you hear? What did you hear? Beyond that, what is your adaptation? Everyone's going to learn how to, like, debug TensorFlow code? Everyone's going to go and go through the training data sets for these things? No, right? So I think this is where I think the arms race of machine learning and machine augmented human decision-making and cybernetics, all these things are creating, really, speciation. Because I think you're right. People will respond. People are not going to they're not going to sit around and be lied to all the time, but they will respond. And what I think is that the response for a lot of people who are below a certain tier of expertise, they are going to turn into vassals. They're going to be digital vassals, essentially. I mean, they're already doing that now. They're already becoming that now. So it's not only elections that deepfakes matter. It's not only deepfake videos that matter, but it's the anti-vax stuff. It's people with all sorts of financial, like weird financial fraud, little Ponzi schemes that show up all the time on Facebook, right? Uh, you and I, maybe we move into kind of more rarefied circles, but for a lot of Americans out there who are, you know, a lot of them are struggling and desperate financially, there's a ton of random stuff they're exposed to. And that stuff is going to become increasingly weaponized by machine learning, by, by maybe deep fakes, by whatever. And those people, after they get burned a couple of times, what are they going to do? They're not going to get burned a third time. They're going to maybe shut off their devices. They're going to maybe distrust any kind of information they get through a digital means. And they then revert back into, like I said, a more Neanderthal state. They're going to revert back into not homo sapiens digital. They're going to basically become part of a, a substrate for other people to manipulate and control. And that's that's why I talk about speciation. And that's why I deeply believe some of Jock Alul's critiques of the technological society. I think we're really, really setting ourselves up for a weird caste system. And that's my concern there. Yep. Uh, speciation, I, uh, I think that's interesting. Uh, I'm maybe somewhat unusual in that I still have lots of interactions with my childhood friends, right? I grew up in a working class neighborhood. Half the adults had dropped out of high school. So this was not a particularly sophisticated area. But the other people were generally hardworking, had good values, and were, have been pretty successful. But it's amazing that there's lots of people my age who hardly know what Netflix is, let alone have ever used it, right? And Facebook, I would never be on that goddamn thing. Isn't that just obsessed pool of shit, right? And so they literally, uh, in some sense, are almost speciated out out of this uh, this new thing that we've all been doing all these years. You know, I've been doing it since I was in my 20s and I've been doing it continuously. So I'm maybe a little anomalous for a, a mid-boomer. But there are a lot of people who just aren't engaged at all, uh, or as you point out, some who have been burned or disgusted and become information nihilists with respect to the networks. And frankly, that may be better in some ways than being duped again and again and again. But it's a loss of agency. It represents a loss of agency. And I know that uh, all nations, was it uh, Eric's great quote, that uh, a nation is a group of people who've decided to forget something together, right? We, we maintain an illusion of democracy and government by the people and all this other stuff. It's a useful illusion to maintain. But at the end of the day, there is value to having some reality behind that illusion. And when these people opt out of all this stuff, they're opting out of the governance system. That's why I call them vassals. 
Well, or they build a governance system in a different modality. Perhaps they decide, you know, fuck what's online. We're only going to believe what we see face to face. I think that's an interesting alternative. And, you know, you've probably heard me talk about in the past uh, my distinction between weak links, which are done online, and strong links, which are done face to face. And it strikes me, uh, in the United States at least, the strong link networks have been underinvested in in the last 30 years as we've all been ever so infatuated with uh, weak links. Uh, when we look at other places, the five-star movement in Italy uh, is a very interesting example. Uh, it was basically built around Meetup, meetup.com, face-to-face interactions at every scale all over Italy. And, you know, we could see that from the rejectionists. So, yeah, speciation, but doesn't necessarily mean our species will win. Okay, so I don't disagree, but I don't agree. <laughs> You're right, that doesn't necessarily mean that our species will win, what, whatever our means. Like, I don't disagree with you about the strong versus weak links. And, and in fact, I would say that the past 30 years of, you say the past 30 years of underinvestment in strong links, I think that was your your phrasing. I think actually that's, you're touching, you're brushing up against the root problem here. And, you know, Verveke talks about the crisis of meaning and the, this last 30 years, it's been more than that. I, I actually say it's something closer to about 60 years. And I peg it to basically the post-war in America and the beginning of really uh, mass media driving mass consumption. Um, and what's happened is that every single step we've removed, we've been weakening communalism and community strong links between people. And then we've been replacing those sources of meaning and those interactions with interactions with celebrities, brands, things that are delivered to us in a broadcast fashion. And even with the advent of FM radio and local FM stations getting you know snapped up, same thing with cable TV, that went from community local to being global broadcast, Turner, right? And so you have this broadcast mass media phenomenon that uh, has essentially destroyed a lot of that person-to-person, in-person sort of thing. And I think the, the strong link system, the, the strong link breakdown that you're talking about, it's, well, maybe not intentional, but it's been an active thing. It wasn't like, oh, shoot, we forgot we were supposed to see other people. No, it was, hey, your kids should watch more TV. Hey, did you see that TV show? You should read, read the newspaper. The newspaper's talking about the stars on this new TV show, this pilot that showed, like all of us are tuned into broadcast mass media. And that by itself has been a deeply weakening thing. So when you talk about the people doing face-to-face connections as a way of building movements, I think that's fantastic and that's true and correct. However, however, I think that kind of stuff, if it's actively being competed against by the digitally networked and digital mimetic systems, it doesn't hold a candle. Yep, this is why what I really speak towards is a hybrid of strong link nodes linked by weak links, right? So they can coordinate and sense make using weak links and act using strong links. And getting that architecture, I mean, those are just words, getting that architecture right, where you take the benefits of both strong links and weak links and create a movement that uses both appropriately strikes me as the winning strategy. Nobody's done it yet, at least that I'm aware of, but I I put it out there as a challenge for, you know, movement builders, party builders, you know, mimetic warfare people to take that combined idea and see what you can make out of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I would I would just push back on that concept of it being a winning strategy because that explicitly sets up, and maybe you're not really saying this, but when you talk about this being a winning strategy, it almost sounds like there's a goal. There's a thing we're trying to achieve and this would be a way to win it. But I want to be very clear that when we say that, we're not 
this is a really very difficult thing to articulate. I think you're right that in a state that you and I would be happy to see would be a system that could be described by that description. But the goal wasn't to win. The goal right now is to create a better architecture for humans to build shared values and shared meaning. And so uh, Joe Edelman talks, uh, I think on the uh, Emerge podcast, he talked about having goal-directed versus value-directed approaches. And so even though I agree with you from a phenomenological description of what a winning state looks like, I want to make sure that we don't convey the wrong idea that, hey, we want to take over the world. Here's you know Jim and Peter's grand plan for megalomania. Like, that's not what this is about. It's more about having communities where there's high meaning and high conviviality, uh, which we don't have right now, right? We have a lot of individuals who are sort of, I think, at peak individualism. The mass media stuff has played into that very well, and we're just done with it. Liberty is not enough. I think that was very well said, Peter, and maybe I will riff off that a little bit. You know, this idea of this weak link, strong link community, uh, when I say winning, uh, let's say wins enough to build a safe ecosystem to develop an alternative to the status quo, where people living within this new force field can basically reject the game A programming and have a space in which they can build game B. And, you know, we don't know what game B is yet, but we know that it avoids uh, many of the pernicious aspects of game A. And to my mind, that's winning. Yeah. So by that definition, then avoiding game A failures, we can pound define that as game B winning. With that, I would agree. All right. Let's let's hop back a little bit here to, you know, fake news, networks, etc. One thing that's very different, big difference between 1975 and today is in 1975, there were a very small number, really, of very homogeneous gatekeepers. You know, there were the three TV networks. There were, frankly, a small number of newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, uh, that drove the news agenda. There was Newsweek and Time Magazine. And so there was a very narrow choice of views of the world. Now, this had some big negatives. I mean, frankly, the idea that gay liberation would have happened under that kind of system is relatively unlikely. And lots of other good things that have come from the breakdown of the control of the discourse by a small number of people. But at the same time, having those small number of professional quality discourse mediators also kept out a lot of general horseshit, you know, stuff like anti-vaxxers and flat earths and God knows what other crap circulates around our unmediated networks today. So it seems to me that what we really are in need of is a new synthesis where we can get some of the quality of mediation, discourse, filtering, uh, et cetera, that we used to get from this handful of big, bland mediators, but instead is dynamic and small scale and fractal and emergent and all those good things. You know, sometimes that goes under the name of sense making. You know, we need to learn how to exist in a world where there isn't a small number of big brother mediators yet still have a whole lot of the useless crap filtered out that we otherwise would uh, waste our attention on. Yes. Um, I mean, I do say that when I talk about what what I think we really need to do, we need a new infrastructure for sense-making and meaning-making and uh, really collective collective action. But sense-making is the first part of the collective action. Could you define sense-making? This is a word that gets thrown around a lot, and I'd love to hear what your take on what it means is. Well... The, the way I think about it, I, I've, I've in the last couple of years really, I've come to a point where I have like a lower and lower sense of esteem for our baseline human hardware 
even as I maintain great faith in the nobility and the potential of homo sapiens and, and people, I just uh, have a certain sense of, uh, I don't know what the right term is. It's, it's not nihilism, but certainly a sense of like, man, most of what we deal with is construct, right? Most of what we tend to even hold up as being, I don't know, like the, the reason I say all this is because on the one hand, we can talk about sense-making in a way that, let's say, the default perspective on sense-making is, hey, all this stuff is going on, we live in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, uh, complex, and uh, ambiguous, and we need to figure out which side is up. Uh, you look at the situation with the downing of the airplane by the um, Russian missile, right? Well, was it the Ukrainian rebels? Was it the Russians? Who was it? And then you look at like when Trump like authorized the airstrikes on that Syrian airfield, and like even hardcore, like actual fact things we can't make sense of now because our world is now so big, so complicated. We see so many different things. And so in this VUCA world, we have to have something, we have to get new tools. You know, you talk about the collapse of the gatekeepers of the fourth estate. How do we figure out something that suffices the same need that those people sufficed? That's one view of sense-making, right? Your average Joe Schmo at home needs to understand they live in a world that has a continuous past. It has some sense of a possibly coherent future. My view on sense-making is a little bit, I, I view it in a, in a way that maybe less privileges the human, individual human viewpoint, which is to say that humans basically uh, lie to themselves all the time. And we go through the world uh, relying on a series of lies and myths and constructions and fables. All of these things we call models, uh, model stories, memories, myths, whatever you want to call them. And sense-making is the process of compressing this gigantic amount of stuff coming in into something that patterns into uh, or is resonant with or is not completely out of tune with the various different models that are playing in our head. That's what most people solve for. They solve for this doesn't offend me. This doesn't surprise me. It doesn't make me feel like I've been living a lie, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's what most people solve for when they when we talk about sense making. Now, when we talk about sense making in an aspirational sense, it's that we want to get high quality models that we can then feed into a control loop that we can then manipulate the environment, taking courses of action that lead to outcomes that we desire. Right. That agency, that cybernetic loop is a critical part of useful sense making. But the vast majority of people and I gave a unconference talk about this a couple of years ago. Um, it's actually where I met Jordan for the first time. And I gave a talk about the story of stories and how I call it the making of sense. Most people demand that reality conforms to their models more than they demand that their models have some semblance to reality. So that's unfortunately, you know, when we talk about sense making, we have to understand there's many different species in the tribe of human that need to engage in a sense making activity. And so when we talk about fighting fake news or coming up with higher quality new sources or having the decentralized or distributed ways of patterning and all these things, we also have to understand that a large part of humanity still runs on malware and firmware that requires stories that make sense more than, you know, information that leads to higher quality courses of action.
actually, if we want to get uh, historical, a little philosophical here, uh, we're essentially talking about the difference between enlightenment thinking and pre-enlightenment thinking, right? The enlightenment was the first full breakaway from just believing random horseshit that somebody made up and instead attempting to make sense that was actually congruent with reality. And yes, I'll put my metaphysical cards on the table and admit to being a naive realist. I actually believe there is a single reality and we can learn more and more about it, though I doubt we can ever learn everything about it, and that the Enlightenment Toolkit was all about sense-making to bring our models as congruent as possible to that reality. And it is a little disconcerting that on both the left and the right, we're seeing people explicitly pull away from the Enlightenment as a core value and retreating to, you know, I'll just be happy to believe horseshit that's been handed down through the generations because it's the horseshit that I feel comfortable with. And that strikes me me as exceedingly dangerous and very counterproductive for the future of the human race. Now, in terms of how this might actually work, I had an example today. I, you know, I mentioned my uh, hometown buddies. Uh, we go hunting, we go fishing, we go out and uh, do crazy shit a few times a year. They know that I'm well connected into the networks and have reasonably good sense making uh, skills and also other nodes near me. I got an email today from a friend asking me, is this real or is this bullshit? Right. It had to do with something to do with uh, gun control and the federal government or something. I did five minutes worth of research and I said, yeah, this is real and it does seem somewhat unprecedented. So yes, this is something you should pay attention to. So as I start thinking about that as a, you know, just a very baby example, one might think of sense-making being in small to medium-sized groups that are interconnected across, call them secretary nodes, kind of like the uh, secretaries of correspondence in the uh, continent. Congress and the pre-revolutionary America, where every community had, uh, or big community, had a group of pre-revolutionaries, and they had a corresponding secretary who wrote to the other nodes, right? And so my buddy asked me, I asked somebody else, or I do the research, and he now has my power, at least at second hand, to make sense of some random thing that came in over the internet. And that may be the model, so long as there are a sufficient critical mass of enlightenment thinkers in this connected uh, network that a person is part of that provides their sense-making apparatus. Yeah, I agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. And I think that this is the thing you talk about there. I also, in my unconference lighting talk that I gave a couple years back, I talked about the difference between a human network versus a computer network. And a human network, the intelligence actually is in the network in in that it's a trusted network. There's there's trust in the connection. So your friend, if they got an email from me or from you know Joe Schmo saying, yeah, this thing is real, they would discount it completely. But if they get it from you, they believe you, right? The fact that it's you, that connection itself, you know, trusted connection is 90% of the signal. doesn't matter what it says on that wire, actually, right? It so strongly modulates the signal going down that connection. But the internet is very interesting, right? It's, as you know, as well, or probably better than most, the internet is just this ossified frozen, you call it frozen accident, I think is a great term. It's the frozen accident of a command and control computer network where the network's supposed to be dumb, where trust was not an entity we cared about at all on the network, right? Back in the day. And so we've overlaid our expectations and our software provides affordances as if the network we use is a human network, but it's not, it's a computer network. 
and the modalities of communication, the broadcast, the amplification, the kinds of um, gamification we do on it, all those things exploit the characteristics of a computer network and completely underserve the needs of a human network. And also they, they don't, um, they don't surface this kind of thing where you're a trusted expert on a couple of things and your friends trust you on that. That's very, very hard to surface in a scalable way. Uh, you know, the human networks are very different than the computer networks. And so I think in the long run, we'll have sense making networks that look more like these organic human networks. Uh, that's what I hope. And, you know, just as a sidebar, I have talked about this a lot, that our architectures, our technical network architectures are all built on foundations of sand, right? TCP, IP, HTTP, HTML, and Unix, all three were designed for a non-adversarial world, right? Uh, These were all designed for, you know, essentially research communities of people who trusted each other and did not assume bad faith exploits. And here we are trying to build high fidelity, uh, reasonably coherent signals on top of these bases of sand. And it is a ongoing problem, which I we will probably not get out of anytime soon. But we have to do it. And again, this is where I come back to the weak link, strong links. Uh, when you say scalable, it doesn't have to scale. Uh, think about it as a, uh, a fractal network where it can scale in smaller nodes, right? So, you know, let's say it's a community of a Dunbar number of people, 150, who have some reasonable level of interconnection amongst them. But some of the members of that network also reach out to other Dunbar clusters, right? So that when you aggregate up, you eventually get to the whole world. But most of the communications are within relatively small groups. That might be the right way to go. Yeah. And actually, I just want to clarify, when I say the word scale, I think it actually can scale. And, and it's one of the reasons I say that the biggest social network and the most resilient social network in the world is still email. But actually, the scale that I'm talking about there, I should have air quoted it. What I mean is scalable in the sense of modern, like VC backed scaled monetization model kinds of things. I think that these kinds of it may very well be the case that really good humane communication technologies almost by design cannot be monetized uh, in the fashion they're being monetized now. They, the, the business models around them are not scalable, even though the networks and the meaning making is. I love that distinction. And I think actually that may point us in some sense of where to be thinking, right? Uh, Don't think in terms of, yeah, I got to build another unicorn. That's what I'm doing this week. I built two. Let me build a third one. You know, fuck them unicorns, right? Instead, let's solve the actual human problem of how can people do sense making of reasonable high fidelity, even if they personally don't have huge sense making skills. How do we allow people to find their advisors or how do they create a virtual set of advisors uh, from a relatively small number, maybe Dunbar number-ish set of network connections? How do they discover how they knit that up? Yeah. And I think the closest we got to something like this was in the, there's kind of this like a period of a few years in the, I think the late nineties, maybe when the internet, we got rich enough to have like embedded audio and video kinds of things. You had some flash animation stuff. And we then had web rings. We had web rings out the wazoo, right? <laughs> I remember those. Those were actually pretty cool. Yeah. There's a evolution Darwinism web ring I was on and there's like a Babylon five web ring and all these things. Those are great. That's organic uh, socialization happening. And the thing about this is I think that we've forgotten. We've forgotten just how powerfully leveraged an activity software development really is. And that in the last 20 years, 
the creation of software, especially enterprise software, the fact that people can get employed, stitching together, writing more band-aids of Java on top of other like Java crap that some other consultant built. Like we have so much financial activity happening around building essentially pretty crummy software that we forgot that software actually is quite leveraged as an activity. And I'll tell two little stories about it. One of them is when we talk about in the open source world, the sustainability crisis, right? This massively open SSL, for instance, turns out the heartbleed bug that resulted because there's only four part-time people working on OpenSSL and it's a core piece of infrastructure for the world, right? In Python, we've got software like NumPy and Pandas and uh, Matplotlib, for instance, the, the most popular plotting package for Python. That's maintained by like maybe a couple of part-time people and they're like part-time. And so when we talk about the sustainability crisis in open source, you know, we can wring our hands about it. And it's a problem that we're not funding these people very well. But if you think about the flip side of that, how many billions of dollars of intellectual value has been provided by just a few people in their part time? Like, that's kind of amazing, right? You imagine if you went back to the like Middle Ages and you had one farmer cutting wheat for, you know, a couple hours a week could feed all of Paris. That would be insane. So the kind of leverage we get off of software, open source shows how incredibly powerful and how impactful the power of software leverage can be when it's unencumbered by scarcity business models. I loved it. If you have a little bit more to say, I was going to transition to a discussion of non-rivalrous economics. Sure. Well, I think this is all part of the same conversation. And I'll just say one more thing. The thing about all of this is that most of the software activity that happens in the world today is pretty much bullshit. And it's bullshit because we're building on sand, right? We have a lot of stonemasons and architects trying to build cathedrals and Notre Dames on literally on quicksand. And actually, if we were to build good underlying pieces that solve problems, they don't need to get modified very much. We can actually build incredibly powerful and fun things. And you can look at Notch, right? Who built Minecraft, which is one of the biggest, biggest gaming phenomena that's happened in the last 10 years. It was one guy working on this stuff and he put this thing together in like six or seven days. Will Wright, who made SimCity, right? He put that together as a fun little thing while he was trying to make another game. These things, these games that unlock tremendous amounts of fun and enjoyment for people, they did not take a lot of people to build. It wasn't, you know, hundreds of people in a big Hollywood studio making some massive RPG. And I think software is the same thing. We have so many people spinning their wheels on you know, so much JavaScript and broken DevOps scripts and all this other crap is because we're building on sand, we're building on sand and real underlying software innovation hasn't really been happening in a real way. And, and I think in this way, I'm also resonant with Eric and Peter Thiel's ideas about stagnation and all of the as if stuff. We have a as if innovative software industry, but actual software innovation, it's really not happening. We're still building in the long shadow of the 70s and it's starting to really crumble. Though there are some very clever things, like I still recall, it was about five years ago, the first time I used Uber, I got, holy shit, somebody's taken a bunch of the pieces and connected them with Tinker Toys, Now I would not want to see the back end on some of this stuff, but this is really a remarkable uh, concept and execution. I won't comment on the, the wonderfulness of the business model, but in terms of a technological tour de force, it was pretty damn amazing. It worked, it was intuitive, it was easy, you go, wow, someone's actually innovated in a major way way here. Though, as we say, the foundations are crappy. God knows how many levels and stacks of crap there are to make that thing happen, which a lot of the engineers themselves don't even understand. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I'm not saying there's been no innovation. I'm just sort of saying relative to how much money we sink into it, it's really terrible. Like, 
you know, when we look at the job ads in San Francisco for entry level front end programmers, you just look at what they spend most of their days doing is garbage. They're reinventing Windows 2.0 APIs, right? If the browser was actually a UI framework instead of some attempt to present information, you know, people could build apps with a hundredth of the effort. Um, hardware engineers in, in Intel and NVIDIA and other places, they spend so much time making these perfect chips and they all know that you know, people on average don't even get 1% of the maximum computational power out of their CPUs. And so I know I'm sort of just whinging now, but I would say that we have way overshot on hyper-specialization and we have not made much progress on thinking about building up from a position of economy. Like if we only had five FTEs to throw at this, what is the simplest way we could build this and in a robust and resilient way, right? That's the kind of thinking that we don't see very much, I think, in the, uh, in the software world. And uh, back to the earlier part of our conversation when I uh, threw out the idea of, you know, the best solution doesn't always win. A technology I was actually quite interested in in the early 90s at the time that HTTP HTML was taking, starting to take off and I was gagging on it. And it's bad now. It was horrendous then. Uh, Sun had a very cool alternative called News, which essentially was a uh, windowing environment in which the uh, native markup was PostScript. Uh, You could do amazing things by sending PostScript to these windows, right? Uh, That even to this day, you can't do an HTTP HTML in a reasonable fashion. You know, you got all these horrendous Ajaxy kludges and, you know, uh, oh, it's, it's still an unbelievable shit show, the uh, HTTP HTML world. And if somehow news had won that brief horse race in 1991 or 92, we would be in a, a very different world where people wouldn't be, you know, trying to do the equivalent of moving telephone poles with chopsticks, which is what I think uh, front end development is the these days, you know, it's just, why is it so goddamn hard to do things that should be easy, right? <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, for all of the whinging that I do about Trump and everything, nothing drives me to drink faster than reading people complaining about, you know, looking at people trying to build stuff on the front end and seeing how much reinvention there happens of stuff that I was doing God, in like 1993, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, why is this hard? And how many hundreds of megabytes are being thrown at making an enumerated list that collapses? <laughs> why is this hard? Why is this the hard thing? It's just, like I said, nothing drives me to drink faster than that. Cause that is really, well, I mean, I, I think, so if we go through it, if we don't drink and we stiffen up and we say, well, what, what is this really? What is this really happening here? This brings me back to the Alul thing. This brings me back to actually a little bit when you talk about enlightenment versus pre-enlightenment and the left and the right abandoning stuff. I think we are at the coming to the culmination or at the culmination of a cycle of glut. We're just at a point where the city, you know, when the Mongols sacked Beijing, the city was, was overflowing in riches, right? And civilizations and cultures and tribes, when they get rich and when they get, you know, they get rich and they think they're in control of things, they get fat and sloppy. And you just put all this energy into excess that has nothing to do with the hard economy of, uh, you know, of like when you're a frontier person. Um, and, and I think Jordan calls us the Ark Heidi Smith model of the domestic, the, the feral and the wild type. And I think we have just a whole lot of over domestication, a whole lot of mandarins and the, these, these front end devs that spend, you know, three weeks putting together list control. That's just a symptom of us having essentially turned off gravity and allowed these things to grow 
these ziggurats to grow too high. And of course, the, you know, the, the money signal says it's worth doing because even an incremental improvement in efficiency in some crappy, big, ponderous corporation is actually more is worth more than it costs to do. And if it's even just a little bit more valuable than it costs to do, it ends up getting done, even though at some higher level, it's kind of a ridiculous thing to do. And that, that comes from our signaling systems. So that's actually a good pivot to uh, the idea of non-rivalrous economics. And you know, for our audience, uh, I'm going to introduce uh, non-rivalrous economics a little bit and, and get your reaction to how you think it might be part of the solution going forward, or maybe not. Uh, you know, this is uh, a concept that, again, our friend Jordan Greenhall, uh, now Jordan Hall, uh, was the first person I'm aware of who brought forth, though I believe there, there were a couple of precursors, but he's the one that, uh, in, in my space at least, uh, made it real. Uh, and that's the idea that we have kind of missed the thought that uh, there's a big difference between rivalrous economics and non-rivalrous economics. A perfect example of a rivalrous economic item is a ham sandwich, right? Either I eat it or you eat it. Uh, we can't both eat it. You know, a classic example of a non-rivalrous economic artifact is a MP3 file of a popular song. It's essentially, at the, in this day and age, free for us both to have it. And our economic model has not really taken advantage of the fact that we could have a lot more distribution of non-rivalrous economic goods than we do. Uh, for instance, many medicines fall into this category. Very inexpensive to actually make the pill, but when you have to navigate through the intellectual property levels and the corporate ownership and all this stuff, this two-cent pill suddenly costs $200. Uh, and that means a whole lot less people are able to take advantage of that pill than would otherwise. On the other hand, and you point this out, on the, what was the term you used for under-supported libraries and stuff? What the non-rivalrous non or radical non-rivalrous approach misses is there has to be a loop back to incent creation and improvement. And that part has not really been thought through yet, uh, where there is some economic signal that comes off of the distribution of non-rivalrous goods uh, that goes back to incent those people who created the non-rivalrous good, though it doesn't make them billionaires, uh, and also sustains a reasonable level of maintenance and improvement in those goods. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good way of talking about it. Uh, I think that definitely captures it. I'm just making some notes here while you're, while, while you're saying that. I think Maybe this is one of my other things, one of my other controversial things, which I think we should just do away with copyright altogether. I think I think copyright is this radioactive albatross that we're dragging into the information and digital age. And I think it would be better if we got rid of altogether and people from demand side actually created the pull for curation and for dissemination and popularization. But that's just neither here nor there. But but that's one example, right? When you because you said the MP3 file. I, I would say that the the for me my view on economics is from the perspective of a dilettante and an amateur. I'm not, you know, I don't have a degree in this stuff or anything like that. But as far as I can tell, economics as an activity for, you know, trade and specialization are kind of the root aspects of economics. And those two fundamental activities are so different when we talk about the space of objects and ideas that can give rise to non-rivalrous interaction dynamics that it's almost worth asking is the term non-rivalrous economics is that term itself an oxymoron 
That is to say, you know, is economics really, as we think about it, fundamentally only useful when we have these rivalrous, scarce or scarcity mentality things? And if we move into this metaphysical space where non-rivalrous things can happen, and predominantly it's non-rivalrous things happening, is it worth talking about economics at all? Is it more about coherence and resonance? Is it more about, um, you know, phase resonance and phase, uh, you know, constructive and destructive interference? You know, maybe those are better terms. Frankly, I guess I don't really care what we call it, right? I would still say that it's the technology or it's the toolkit for creation and distribution. And yes, we call it economics in game A, uh, but there has to be an analogous toolkit that is coherent for a, an alternative mechanism to emerge. And uh, whether you call it economics or you call it something else, uh, I don't really care. You know, there are some people who have done some, uh, you know, interesting work on analogs to economics in, you know, the game B or an alternative world. You know, for instance, you know, that Daniel Schmattenberger and his four essays on his blog about a future economics is, is a good place for people to start, right? Yeah, I, I think that the, the the reason I bring that up is is just because the way I see it viscerally kind of uh, where I have to deal with this stuff on a very practical level is in the intersection of the open source software communities and the business world that's starting to adopt that as the fundamental sort of building blocks. And the business world still thinks about software artifacts as being valuable. It still thinks about its employees on the basis of a labor economics model. And when we look at what's made the uh, open source software movement successful, the values are completely different. The units that we talk about, you know, people talk about the values that are spouse there are a completely different set of values. So I think if we really want to pull this back to kind of the metaphysical bases, there's not that much that people fundamentally have to tokenize, to parcel out, to, to quantize and, and give to other people that can, that can constitute the basis of an economic system, uh, or at least one that's worth talking about. Because if it's entirely bespoke in any given pairwise relationship, then there's no model possible that we can build, right? But if it's something we can abstract, uh, some interaction dynamics we can abstract outside of that, then maybe we have the basis for the, for an economics. But but I, I don't know. I just don't want to put too much technology and math into something that is a very deeply human and interhuman kind of activity. Certainly, let's think, talk about open source, uh, you know, one signal, and it's not a fungible signal, it's a, a completely differentiated signal, uh, is the reputational signal from working on an important or even an unimportant open source project. You know, as part of, part of your resume, it certainly impresses me when I'm looking at somebody, you know, I was a contributor to Project X for the last seven years, right? Not only does that show that they know how to, you know, deal with other people, but I, they've actually pointed me to a significant body of their work that I can go take a look at. So there's an example of signaling, but does not use a fungible token. Maybe that's the way forward is, th is realizing that the signaling may not be in terms of, of simple tokens. Yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, fung the fungible token aspect of economics is just there to scale transactions beyond the zone of trust, right? Because if you're exchanging uh, cows and chickens for fishes and fishnets, your zone of trust is like a clan or a tribe level. But if you want to trade, you know, silks with people across the mountains, you got to have something else, right? So the tokenization as a way of scaling transactions beyond trust barriers is fine, um, but that's not as useful when it comes to these kinds of activities. It's almost like every project has its own kind of token. Every person has their own kind of token, right? If you get a thumbs up, and it actually our software systems, um, they don't, they don't, 
create affordances for this. Actually, it's really unfortunate. Like you look at a project like, oh, this get a project only has three stars. Another one has 10,000 stars. Right. But the ones, the 10,000 stars, some professors taught a bunch of students. They all thumbs up his project. But this one, with three stars, it's like Guido Van Rossum and Linus Torvalds and like, you know, somebody else, you know, some big computer science person. Well, guess what? That three star project is worth a whole lot more. Right. So these reputational systems are, I think, certainly a way forward. But I wonder, you know, I do wonder if there's better ways that we can scale interactions, um, you know, beyond the simple, naive web of trust model. But I, I, I don't know. It's certainly an area where there's a crying need for innovation. Think about an emergent bottom-up filter that could be there on Facebook. One of the things that drives me crazy is that Facebook provides no real tools for nuanceful response to content that flows by. You know, I'd love to put every piece, not every, but ones that either pissed me off or I really liked, I'd like to place them in, you know, some two-dimensional space of quality and importance, right? And if Facebook just allowed that and then used a little bit of tools for uh, smartly aggregate them and doing some commutative structure across those, we could tune up a much better flow of what we saw than this current crazy world where the only signal is like, like, right? Oh my God. I mean... I, this could be a whole series of podcasts because the, the thing is that people don't understand just how much a little bit of a software tweak can have an absolutely massive impact on the usability of communications infrastructure. Building communications infrastructure is such a nuanced thing. It's such a nuanced thing. And then we just have like interns go and try this and try that. It's absolutely, it's, I don't know what kind of malpractice it is, but it's some kind of malpractice. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. You talk about the things that we would like to see on, on Facebook. There's so many things. There's so many things we can do on Twitter and Facebook that would, you know, the Twitter was talking about hiding retweets and likes, right? As a thing, you, you think about that, right? Or if you added a, a downvote button or a dislike button, right? Or if you had uh, simply socialized K files. So every single person on Twitter has an ability to add block lists and turn on essentially some weight of all of their, the people they follow, their block lists. That would instantly, instantly change dynamics of the virality on Twitter. But of course it would screw up their valuation, but it would create a much better conversational space. And all these different tools, all these tweaks we, we might use, they, what they would do is they would give the end user the ability to participate in a conversation around the norms of that communication space. So, you know, what, one of the things that I talk about is that every interaction between two people is a space. Every conversation is a space and the space has norms. And the problem with the social media platforms that we build, we call them social media, they're really attention marketing and virality platforms, but they're there to, they're completely unnormed. They're unnormed spaces, which is why it's so screwed up. And, and it's just uh, deeply, again, I don't know what kind of malpractice it is. I don't know what the term to use in the future. We might have some, you know, someone write a PhD thesis about the nature of harm and communications and the way that these things are perfect examples of bad design. But I, I don't know how to. I don't have the words for it right now, but it's something I feel very deeply and viscerally. I had this idea actually last year about putting in a concept of like equal time, right? So we used to have this concept of equal time on the airwaves. And now you have places like Twitter and people on Twitter with larger followings than the broadcast networks used to have. And there's no equal time concept, but they have the same kind of reach. 
How's that right? How's that going to be a good thing? So, you know, all these UI systems that we, we build, they have so many millions of variables that we could tune and tweak to make for much better for meaningful human interaction. But none of them are incentivized to do this. None of them are monetized in a way that would be aligned with that. Um, it's a really terrible situation. The unspoken attractor is the fact that the way they make their money is selling ads, right? And when the world went down that route, uh, this kind of uh, shallow but massive exploit is exactly what what one would expect, right? All they're trying to do is optimize eyeballs, times attention, times excitability, and then sell that to people uh, per Twitch, basically. The alternative model, I thought about this a lot, but the world really just seems to reject it, is suppose we had a discourse platform that you had to pay for a little bit, $5 a month, $10 a month, essentially a, a trivial amount. And it was built on the principle that we are not here to maximize your eyeballs or maximize your twitchiness. We're here to maximize the value you get from the system. What a concept, right? And we'll, and we would build in many of these clever network smart tools so that we'd ha- all have a better experience. And because the company is paid by the monthly subscription, it actually has the incentive to keep you off the system as much as possible. So long as you got the maximum amount of value, uh, isn't that the correct incentive? Well, I think, again, in terms of leverage of software, we think now very much on the internet. One of the legacy sort of things we've inherited from the success of the frozen accident of the internet um, is this thinking that things must intrinsically be client server. And they don't have to be. We can create very powerful peer-to-peer communication networks. Now, we still need some level of transport level centralization for you know, to optimize for low latency and, and resilience and things like that. But at the end of the day, people are talking to each other. Um, people don't have to talk to a server. And so a lot of the ideas behind the decentralized web uh, are really around creating these tools that don't they don't impose a client server model. And the reason that's so important is because the instant you have a client server software architecture, uh, obviously as the app maker and the developer, you're going to run the server for everyone. And now as you scale, you naturally carry this drag with you, right? Every, every user you get is another liability and you've got to keep a session alive. You got to back up their data. You got to delete it if they ask you to, if you're compliant with GDPR, all this nonsense. So the pernicious thing about client server architectures is that they force successful businesses in that environment must have scaling problems. They must need to then monetize every user's use because they're taxed by bandwidth costs. So then you're looking at putting either a monthly charge in or selling ads or something like that. But what if you actually just create a system that didn't do it that way? What if you create a system that just had users have their own data? If they want to back up their data somewhere else, they can. And to share their data, they share their data one time with someone else and the data moves over there. And, and that's like, that's a very natural system. No server needs to be up. I don't need to, if I need, if I'm sitting next to you at dinner, I'll share a picture with you. It doesn't have to round trip to Cupertino or Mountain View. Um, you know, that kind of model dramatically increases the amount of bandwidth available. It dramatically decreases the, uh, the cost to build new innovative types of software. And so I think that is why I'm so gung ho on pursuing the decentralized web technologies as the next generation of essentially a portal to a new land where we can create new kinds of information systems. It's not just about decentralized Facebook. It's about creating better, better Wikipedias, creating uh, better shared Jupyter notebooks. It's better everything when we don't force decentralized surveillance where ad supported kinds of companies. And I don't believe because these companies are now hugely public 
public worth 50 hundreds of billions of dollars. They essentially are bound as fiduciaries, their directors cannot have them pursue models that destroy their market capitalization. So they are, I have basically deeply pessimistic outlook on any of them ever reforming their business models. I just don't think it'll ever happen. So criticized by creating, that's why I'm putting my efforts and, uh, and some of my own dollars even behind the decentralized web. We'll turn to that next, but I want to make a little sidebar here. Maybe it is feasible to have subscription-based services at scale these days. I went and did the numbers, and Facebook's revenue per month per user is $1.99. And built into that $1.99 is a bunch of profit. They have a very high profit margin and a large cost to operate their advertising infrastructure. So they could operate probably as a profitable business at $1.25 per month per user. That seems to me a number that is so low that maybe, just maybe, particularly if the payment infrastructure were painless, we could finally get people willing to actually pay for a service so that the service's job is to make them happy, not to exploit them. A couple of things. Number one, that number is incorrectly low. In North America, Canada, basically in Canada, the U.S., I think it's something like 15 to $25 per quarter. So it's much more than that, actually, uh, much more than the number you quoted. And furthermore, that's on average. Keep in mind, Facebook is a targeted advertising platform. So the user, not all users are created equal. The users who can pay $25 a quarter or $100 a year for Facebook, they're probably worth $500 a year to Facebook because they're the ones with money. The poor users who don't have that kind of money, who are at the low end of that, they are they're worth less. So it's not, it's not all equal. I had this explained to me because I did the same math. I was like, crap, what if we just had a big old campaign to get Facebook just to charge us? And it's like, no, no, it's not going to work out. And, and the second, and the reason is because of that dynamic. And second of all, um, uh, cause you know, look, you might be willing to pay five bucks a month for Facebook. I bet you you're not going to pay 500 bucks a year for Facebook. It ain't that valuable. Right? So, um, that's the problem there. The, and, and tied to that then is their market cap at the end of the day, they are worth a certain amount of money on the market. If the directors of the company go and sabotage the company's business model because they want to be nice people, they're going to have shareholder lawsuits for the next 10,000 years, right? They cannot do that. You know, not unless there's a serious antitrust action or something, can they then say, we're going to pivot our model, we're doing this, we're going to banking, right? We have all this creepy information on people, we'll use it to score their credit instead of, you know, selling ads to them. So that's why they're doing this, all this like Libra stuff is because they're trying to pivot and to see if maybe that's another area to, to do this stuff. But I, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's fundamentally philosophically inappropriate to be the central entity holding all of this information on people. And so any business model tied to monetizing that privileged information is going to be immoral and problematic in its own way. And I agree with you that the incumbents can't do it, but I would just hold out to you young entrepreneur wannabes that maybe the time is right. Because if you can get $2 a month from people and you don't care if they're poor or rich, right? Uh, then you can support a service that has the level of complexity of Facebook, at least at scale. Where the scale transform is, I don't know, but I bet it's a shitload lower than it used to be. Now that you could actually build your back end on cloud services and don't have all the high fixed costs of running your own data center, it might just work. So the attack 
with a different business model uh, might bring them down, uh, particularly because it would preferentially, I would posit, strip away their most valuable customers. You know, it's the people that are willing to pay $2 or $5 a month that, as you point out, might be worth $50 a month. And as those people migrate to the uh, cheap paid platform that has a pro-consumer rather than an exploitive business model, uh, that could be very destabilizing. Just a thought for you young entrepreneurs out there. Go get them. Well, it's also the other thing to keep in mind is there is a hysteresis to this or a path dependence. It took Facebook a lot of effort to get everyone onto Facebook. Now that everyone's on Facebook, you know, when the next platform comes along, all it has to do is, hey, click here to invite your Facebook friends button, right? Or click this, you know, share this link on Facebook to have your friends join you on this new network. That's doable. Like that kind of thing is doable. And so you people can bootstrap the next network off of Facebook the way that Facebook couldn't have bootstrapped off of MySpace or, you know, like classmates.com, God forbid. So, um, so I think there's definitely the opportunity there. That's again, I wouldn't be investing in this space if I didn't think it was possible to change it, but it is going to be a process. And let's move on to the next item. And that is, as you hinted at, you've been a significant player in thinking about an alternative distributed network architecture. And you, know, you and I have talked about some really radical stuff, ideas of yours. So go riff on the idea of a distributed internet, a distributed web, and all the cool things that could be done on it. Okay, so the basic idea actually came to me not because I'm a you know crypto anarchist from the 90s or anything, but actually it was a few years ago that I had this realization that almost all of the data that I get in the space of a year that I download, read, consume, whatever, all of the content that I get could fit on a flash chip the size of my pinky nail. That would pretty much hold all, you know, maybe barring like streaming 4K movies and things like that. But most everything else, the news, the fake news, everything, all of it could fit on a physical device the size of my pinky nail. So I thought about, wow. Now that's, of course, getting it all at once is different than, you know, getting it on demand. But still, you know, it kind of got me thinking about, you know, we put a lot of infrastructure in place to do this client server stuff when really the content sharing piece could be done in a way that's orthogonal to, you know, lots of these other things that sort of went down this rat hole of like looking at things like IPFS and looking at all this other stuff. And I emerged at the other end, realizing that there's a few pieces that we need to actually create. We create a radically different kind of approach, which is basically to say that um, the client server approach of HTTP is busted. It inherits all of the, the, the problems of TCP IP, really IP itself. And the client server architecture fundamentally creates a uh, asymmetry. The user does not have control and access over their own data. So then I also realized that the lack of an identity system on the internet has been a problem since day one, right? Since we started getting the spam problems. And so we use email, we use phone numbers, which all these are identities that we rent from various centralized services. Very few people can run their own email server anymore. Um, so it, it sort of got me thinking, I came to this realization that we can create a radically different architecture that's actually very powerful, that maintains all the modern sort of things that we'd like to see in our web apps and stuff, but it separates out the interaction of an application with the data and then the transfer of that data to sharing it with other people. So we have a point-to-point -point system for people to share their data with each other. We then use some modern techniques like um, CRDTs and some other sort of hash blockchain Merkle tree sort of based things. We can create decentralized infrastructure for running apps that are eventually consistent. That's almost like, you know, imagine if this, maybe the best way to put it is, is imagine if visiting a website to view, you know, going to someone else's server to view a web page. instead of what we did is we made it two-step so that we have a Dropbox 
Dropbox. And I share my Dropbox folder with you. So they're synchronized whenever they can be. But I then point my web browser to just look at my local Dropbox. If I want to edit a file and save, it saves it to local storage. It saves in the Dropbox. Eventually, that gets synchronized to your Dropbox. And then you open up and look at it. And just by separating out that application interaction with state and then the transfer and um, merge of state down the road, we can create a fundamentally different architecture that then doesn't put a Google or Facebook in the middle of things. Um, and furthermore, if we separate transport of data from the application communication to data, we can create mesh networks and local things. For instance, I had this incredibly frustrating experience when I was on a flight, an international flight with my family, and I had a video file on my phone that my kids wanted to watch. I was on an Android device, they were on an iPad. And between these two devices, I could not, without, you know, there was no Wi-Fi, there was no internet, I could not transfer, like, actually, it wasn't a video file, it was like 30 megs of MP3s. I couldn't transfer these songs from this one thing to another without being connected to some centralized data center. And that was just absurd. But if we were to use local mesh-based technologies, my phone and the iPad could communicate at gigabit speeds and I could just transfer that to the, the device there and they could just play it. So it's a completely different way of thinking about applications, about thinking about the relationships between applic uh, application authors and the data and, and the users and their data. And that's why I support. Uh, I've been funding the, the Beaker and the DAT projects, and it's an alternative way of building a browser and application structures and user authentication and all these things. Uh, it's an alternative way of, of building essentially an internet infrastructure. Let's tell the people where they can find out more about Beaker. What was say the other one was? DAT. Yeah. So it's the datproject.org, I believe, and beakerbrowser.com. DAT, D-A-T? D-A-T. And, and tell us a little bit about those projects. What do they do? Well, so DAT is, uh, you can think about it as essentially like a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, BitTorrent-like protocol for doing decentralized uh, Dropbox. So it's a blockchain-based system, and you can create a DAT archive of anything on your drive. It's basically a shared folder that automatically syncs with um, other people who have a copy of your shared folder. That's the DAT project, so it kind of works like IPFS, but there's not an attempt to monetize. There's no Filecoin monetization model built onto it. And then the second thing, then Beaker Browser, it's a browser for the decentralized web. So it looks at your local DAT archive. It runs a full, I mean, it's a full-fledged browser. So it can speak to HTTP colon slash slash standard internet sites. You can load up Facebook, you can go to Twitter. Everything works great. It's just a web browser. But it can also load DAT colon slash slash URLs, which then are, you know, 32-byte uh, hashes or 64-byte hashes that basically go and create or they, they uh, create on your local machine a mirror of a particular you know, shared archive, and then it opens it up on the local machine. And you can make your own copy of it. You can edit the code. You can edit the source code of the application that's being served up. And they've built chat apps on top of this. They've built like a Slack-like thing. They've built decentralized Twitter, uh, even a basic decentralized Facebook-like thing. And the whole idea here is that websites now become central. The websites, again, become central to the experience. The data itself becomes central to the experience. And applications are just lightweight things that sit on top and give you different kinds of UIs. They're no longer walled garden platforms that you fork all your activity and data into. Your data is still your data, and apps are just lightweight things that manipulate it and show it to you in different kinds of ways. It's a really wonderful system. And have you, have there been some winners yet? You know, again, as we we know, each one of these new platforms that take off, usually there's a single 
winner. You know, the, the Apple took off with VisiCalc and uh, the IBM PC took off with uh, Lotus 123. The Mac took off with the various graphics tools that were created for it. Is there, in your mind, a application that has done so well on these new platforms that it's compelling? No, not yet. It's still early stages on this stuff. It's still early days. Take a look at it. I would encourage other people, you know, who are thinking about something new. I mean, I remember how exciting it was, the web in 1992. I can't even make myself think about the web anymore. It's so old and horrifying. Uh, so it'd be fun to actually spend a few cycles looking at something entirely fresh. I'm sure there are a lot of other people out there uh, who feel the same way. Well, it is nice to have had a privilege. It has been a privilege to have ringside seats watching a generative, open, collaborative communication space get punched, beaten, and cut down into a mere broadcast system for copyright copyrighted materials. Like it's really been something fascinating to watch, but you know, that's a long conversation to talk about the OS uh, technical debt between the operating systems that led us to the browser winning as essentially the winning middleware, uh, which then led to this kind of thing happening. But that's maybe a different conversation for a different time. Yep. I think in fact, we've come near to the end of our time. Do you have any final thoughts? I just want to say it's a, it's a privilege to, to have this conversation with you. And thank you very much for having me on the show. And I'll have to say I had high, uh, high expectations and you exceeded them. This has been <laughs> an amazingly uh, both broad and deep conversation, uh, which is the goal of the Jim Rutt Show, which, as we say, is uh, real thinking about deep ideas. So uh, thanks very much, Peter. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Jim. Production services and audio editing by Stanton Media Lab. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. Music